uh, tonight, uh, the text is actually chapters 19 to 21. It's a huge chunk. I may just read 19 and 20 and sort of summarize 21. Uh, when a culture is out of control. So find Judges 19. You know, Pastor, I, I just feel like I should say this. 15 years ago today, we drove into the yard of our new home in Congo. 15 years ago? Okay. And we joined the church within two weeks. Mm -hmm. Great. Very good. Okay, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her, and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them, and when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside. Uh, into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gideon. And he said to this to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler, 
in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was this concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gideon. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, 
and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out to Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line at the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city, and as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal, Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Mareh, Gibeah. 
And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of uh, Rimon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and remained at the rock of Rimon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found all the towns that they found, they set on fire. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And we're not even done with that, that story. In February 1994, in an interview for Dateline, NBC, Jeffrey Dahmer stated that if there is no God, then why shouldn't he have done the things that he did? He killed and ate 17 people in crimes that shocked the nation. He asked why. Why should he modify his behavior if there is no God? Now, obviously, no one would sympathize or agree with Jeffrey Dahmer in any way. But Christians do indeed believe that it is precisely because God does exist that we have moral laws and ethics. If you take God completely out of your equation, then why does it surprise anybody the depths that you would sink to? Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that everybody who takes God out of the equation sinks to the level of a Dahmer. 
Uh, that would be ridiculous. But what I am saying is that strong faith in God should result in ethical living. As a society, we have tried our best to take God out of everything. Should it surprise any of us what we're reaping? No. In 1957, the Everly Brothers sang, Wake Up, Little Susie. You remember that? And there was a line in the song, Our reputation is shocked. Why was their reputation shocked? Because they had stayed out too late without a chaperone. Now, society would laugh at that today, right? Society would encourage them to stay out all night and to celebrate any type of sexual sin they wanted to engage in. We live in a time when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. It is a modern-day book of judges that we are seeing in 2020. Now, as I've mentioned to you before, it used to be that people blushed if they were embarrassed. Now they're embarrassed if they blush. Sin of every stripe is celebrated and encouraged. Now, folks, as we come to this last section in, in the book of Judges, just when we thought matters could not get any worse, look at what happens. The book closes with this narrative and the results of everything that happened showing how far the nation has fallen from what God had intended for them. Take your Bibles with me a minute and turn to Romans chapter 1. Can't believe how loud those race cars are in here tonight. Down at the dirt track. Y'all hear? Yeah. Loudly as I do? I was thinking the same thing. Romans 1. Beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those practice them. Now folks, that's what happens when God's Word is rejected. If you were to look back at verses 16 and 17, those verses show what happens when God's Word is embraced. When His Word is embraced, salvation occurs and then righteous living by faith. And then beginning in verse 18, Paul shows what happens when the Word of God is rejected. When people knowingly and purposely reject God's truth, God turns you over to do what you are determined to do. It's actually part of His wrath. The wrath of God, on the one hand, is eschatological. What do I mean by that? It's future. But the wrath of God is also present. Paul makes the point in the last half of Romans 1 that when you see these things happening in a society... It is proof positive that God is already turning you over in His wrath. It's not that His wrath is coming one day, which it is, but Paul is saying it's already here. And the fact that you're seeing all of these things is proof before your eyes every day that His wrath is already being poured out on that society. Now that should give us pause today. But people don't care. In fact, they mock that we even talk about such a thing as the wrath of God. Judges 19 is an illustration of Romans 1. Now, First thing I want you to see tonight is a substitute marriage. In the first three verses of chapter 19. 
Levites could, could marry with certain stipulations, but this guy marries who? A concubine. Concubine wives were culturally legal, but the practice was not acceptable to God. It was a halfway step. I guess you could sort of say it's akin today to a couple living together without marriage. It's kind of a half step. And so here we have a so-called man of God who is not practicing marriage as God taught about marriage in Genesis 2. And so right away, what do we see about this so-called man of God? He is a man of compromise. Even a man of God is doing what is right in his own eyes. Wow. What the book of Judges is saying about society in general, what they're doing, here's a man of God doing the same thing. What he feels like doing, what's right in his own eyes. Folks, when spiritual leaders who are supposed to be shepherds are living this way, it says something horrible about the culture. Now, there's a lesson here. When leaders are not who they're supposed to be, then we can assume the people won't be. Leadership's important. Leadership is to set a high standard. What kind of message are we sending to our young people today when they cut on the news and leaders, whether it's in the business world, political world, religious world, they see leaders guilty of doing everything that the rest of society is doing? There's a crisis of leadership. Now, notice what his concubine does. She is unfaithful to him. You're beginning to wonder about everybody in the book of Judges. Now, according to the law, what should have been done with her? She should have been stoned. That's right, stoned to death. That was the punishment for adultery. Some people would say, how cruel. But by swift punishment, God intended to send a strong message to keep the land holy. Because He's a holy God. People look at some of the strict laws in the Bible and they protest against them, but, but they were meant to communicate that God is a holy God and that those who claim to be His people are to be radically different from everybody else in society. There's to be a difference. And so the strict laws were to hold society in check and to be a deterrent against evil in the land. But what's this Levite do? He shows her great mercy and love and goes after her. Now, according to Leviticus 21.14, a priest was not allowed to marry such a person. It would ruin his ministry. But he's married, uh, or she's his concubine, now he's going after her. Now, even though we get the picture of him being a compromiser, we also get the picture 
that at this point anyway, he's somewhat gentle towards her. Now, as we'll see later on, that's, that's definitely a wrong impression. <laughs> well, the second thing I want you to see from verses 4 to 21, gracious hospitality and unwise zeal. The girl's father probably didn't want to see his daughter leave. But whatever his motive, he seems to be a gracious man. He appears overjoyed that this Levite has come looking for his daughter. And so apparently his thinking of her quasi-marriage relationship, uh, he's, he's happy that it appears that that relationship with this Levite is going to be saved. And so he's very kind, he's very hospitable towards this Levite. Now, folks, we see in the Bible that hospitality was oftentimes used greatly by the Lord, right? In Bible times, hospitality was extremely important. It was how God expected His people to look after one another. We were to be hospitable to one another. What's the writer of Hebrews say about hospitality in Hebrews 13? Angels unaware. Some have entertained angels unaware. Yeah. Well, this Levite finally exercises un unwise zeal. He decides to leave. Nothing wrong with that. But what is unwise about it is it's nearing dark. It's nearing nightfall. Travel travel was dangerous at night. And so what's he doing? He's subjecting himself and his family to danger. Well, they run out of daylight. No surprise. They come to Jerusalem, which is not under Israelite control yet. It didn't become Israel's until David captured it and it became his capital. And that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Well, Gibeah was under Israelite control and he assumes it will be safer and so he wants to journey on and get to Gibeah. The people of Gibeah fail to extend the expected hospitality. Again, what are we being shown here, folks? We're being shown how the climate was, how people are not doing right. They're not doing what they were supposed to be doing. When people disregard God, they can easily become callous towards one another. And it becomes a situation of every man for himself. Well, back then there were not many places for travelers to stay, and so they were supposed to extend hospitality. They didn't have Holiday Inn Express or Hampton Inn Suites or anything like that. So again, they were supposed to extend hospitality to bring strangers in at night, to give them safety. They didn't do that. So what are we seeing everywhere in the book of Judges? No matter who it seems like we're talking about, we're seeing constant failure. The people of this town failed to do what was right. 
Now, we're not told here at this point that they did anything egregiously wrong. They just failed to do right. Is that sin? Yeah. When we talk about sin, what kind of sins are there? Sins of commission and sins of omission. What's our attitude when we see human need? Do we care? How about when we see a corrupt culture? Do we give up, quit doing anything? After all, it's easy to, to react that way. But you've heard if good people do nothing, evil prevails. And that's exactly what's taking place here. You let there be a vacuum of good and evil will move in. And all it takes for that to happen is for people to do nothing. You know, it kind of makes me wonder, where's the church been in America the past 40 years? You know? Just think about it. How have we gotten to the point today where we say a baby can even be being born full term, coming out of the womb, being born, the baby's being delivered, and the doctor murders the baby? How have we gotten to a point that that's supposed to be okay? How have we gotten to a point when we think it's okay, whatever we want marriage to be, however we want to define it, it's supposed to be okay. How have we gotten to this point? That's why 2 Chronicles 7.14 begins where it does with us. God says, if my people are called by my name, the church has got to be right. Now, I'm not saying that the people of the city in this account are to blame for what follows, but had they done what they were supposed to have done, the city would have been a different kind of city. But just like the concubine's father, here we meet another man in verse 16 who steps up to the plate. He's a shining light at first in the midst of darkness, he shows initially a difference that one can make. He invites him into his home. He says, don't stay out here. It's dangerous. Come, I'll, I'll give you shelter. Well, the third thing I want you to see tonight, degradation and depravity. Here we see men, men of this place that are just like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. This story essentially mirrors the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's the Bible say about these men here? How, how, how are they described? They're worthless fellows. Indeed, they, they, they're worthless. Worthless and evil. They want to have homosexual relations with these guests. They're, they're like animals. Talk about sexual predators. That's what these men are in this story. It's astonishing what they're trying to do. It just shows that men will repeat the same old sins over and over and over again. And what did God do with Sodom and Gomorrah? God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of a vacuum of the Word of God in the land, here they are going right back into the same old kinds of sins all over again. Folks, again, where we see how bad things get when people cast aside 
the Word of God. When people cast aside the Word of God, they get to a point that anything goes. Now, at first, as I mentioned a moment ago, the old man seems like a model of hospitality. But in verse 24, uh, he doesn't show us much either. He should have been a protector to everyone. He's even willing to throw out his daughter to him. I mean, how disgusting. How low can you get? And look at what he says. Do to them what seems right in your eyes to do. There's that, there's that same idea all over again in the book of Judges. That's the whole problem. Here's my daughter. Here's this man's concubine. Do to them whatever you want to do. Not much of a gentleman, was he? But women were nothing back then. I know. Vile, according to this, it's vile if it's going to be done to the guys, but it's not vile. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. To make matters worse, it appears in verse 25 that the Levite himself pushes his concubine out the door to these men. Again, these don't, these don't appear to me to, to be noble men. If a girl today were to meet men like this, run the other way as fast as you can. Folks, when somebody acts in their own self-interest the way these men are, everybody in the family suffers. The men of the city rape her all night while all the men, or this man and the Levite, are behind closed doors. I wonder if they slept. The men behind closed doors, I wonder if they were able to go to sleep. And then the Levite's not very compassionate the next morning either, is he? Because he opens the door and she's laying there at the threshold. You gruff. Get up. Come. Folks, these are a bunch of losers. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. You can judge a lot about a society's character and the character of individuals by simply looking at how people treat one another. Now on top of that, he chops her up and sends her body out all over Israel to the 12 tribes of Israel. All of a sudden, <laughs> this guy's indignant. He's indignant what they've done to his concubine, and so he does this to get shock value. It's a little late to be upset over sin, but anyway, he makes his point. In the remainder of the book, this narrative right here continues to play out the results of this. Everyone from Israel comes together and decides that sin like this has got to be dealt with. Sin of this nature, if allowed to remain, will destroy the nation. They, they recognize that. Sin is like cancer. It'll destroy an individual. It'll destroy a family. It'll destroy a nation. 
Well, to their credit, even if they don't go about things right, they decide to deal with this. They decide to deal with what has happened. Now, I find it disturbing that in verses 12 to 13, the men of Benjamin refused to turn the perpetrators over. You would think they would realize a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And these men among us, among our tribe, it's evil what they've done and hand them over. But what do they do instead? They're trying to protect them. You know, I've known of cases of church discipline that people refuse to allow uh, the church to enact any kind of discipline. Instead of, instead of dealing with the perpetrators, all of a sudden they want to protect them. And that's a mistake. Because again, where sin has been, where sin has occurred, if it's properly dealt with, God brings renewal to the whole group. But here they are protecting these predators. Now, I find it interesting that even after God told Judah to go up first, God still allowed, not once, but two different times, for those taking action to suffer losses. You have to wonder about that, but I've got, a, I've got an idea on that. I have to conclude that God is judging the whole nation a bit. Yes, He's going to... He's going to ultimately bring the predators to justice. But the whole nation, because of its moral and spiritual slide, has allowed a climate like this to develop in the first place in the land. And, and so even though they're doing right and they're going to deal with these perpetrators who have done this evil, God's allowing the whole nation to suffer some. As far as modern day application to this, if God were to judge the nation, I think some of that judgment would fall on the church too. Just because the church in society has been complicit some of the evils that have gone on in society. In your scripture it talks about judgment begins with the household of faith. Oh, yes. So I think that's happening here. Even though they're doing right because they're part of an ungodly culture that has even allowed this kind of climate to develop. Even though God's going to ultimately give them victory, God's letting them suffer judgment too. Well, in the long run, they, they deal with the situation, but in dealing with the situation, they also create another problem too because if Benjamin is wiped out, Israel will end up missing a tribe. And so they grieve over this national loss, but then they have to come up with a creative solution to deal with the new problem they've created. And I'll let you read about that in verse 21, uh, chapter 21 when you get home tonight. But they come up with a strange way to get the remaining men of Benjamin wives. 
You see, they, they have to come up with a plan that honors the first vow that they made not to give their daughters in marriage to any of the Benjamites. With this new plan, though, in arranging it to where some of these remaining men of Benjamin, 600 of them, can get wives, this plan they concoct, they're protecting the fathers of these girls because in that first vow they made, they vowed that no man would give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. And so they come up with the plan to where these these there's 600 to begin with, 400 wives are provided, so 200 men don't have wives. They come up with a plan to where 200 men can basically go and kidnap girls when they go out dancing. And, and that way, the fathers of these girls haven't given their daughters to these men. And so the first vow they made not to do this is being protected. These fathers are not being guilty because their daughters were taken by force. I think all this shows that when sin has been allowed to flourish, it can be kind of tricky to straighten everything out, can it? What's a shame about this? Had they only done right to begin with, none of this would have happened this way. Well, let me close tonight by giving some principles related to the pattern of corruption. Number one, corruption begins with a disregard for the Word of God. That's where the downhill slide begins. A disregard for the Word of God. When we cast God's Word aside, we open the door to all sorts of evil. Second principle, when you disregard the Word of God, social structures like marriage and the family also suffer. When you disregard the Word of God, social structures like marriage and the family also suffer. Third thing we see here, common courtesies and kindnesses are forgotten. And there's a rudeness and a harshness that infiltrates society. Fourthly, Degradation and evil follows. Fifth, disregard for life at all levels develops. Disregard for life at all levels develops. And people become concerned only for themselves. I hope you're seeing some parallels to today. <clears throat> but the good news, six, the only hope for society when things go this far 
is the reconciling power of the gospel that brings peace with God and then with our fellow men. The only hope for society when things go this far is the reconciling power of the gospel that brings peace with God and peace with our fellow men. And then how does the book close? Same way it opens. Like bookends. Everybody did what was right in their eyes. It's a disturbing book. Showing the corrupting influence of sin. Going our own way and ignoring God. So there you have it. The book of Judges, we covered it in what, about 10 lessons? Any comments or questions? Maybe there was an absence of uh, conviction and a, um, an emptiness and void um, that permeated this time in society. It's hard to believe the book of Joshua was like it was. And then Joshua dies. And then here you end up with this. How quickly things happen. I'm taking 200 years in America. Yep. Women just didn't have much value in that way, did No. Not at all. And even, even in New Testament times, under Roman culture, they didn't either. Uh, a Roman husband and father had absolute right over his wife and kids. He, he could have them put to death. He well, could do it. Was that way, it was that way in the 1800s. Yeah. You're Uh, Cordell, would you lead us in our prayer time? As we think about any other comments before we close tonight? Before Cordell leads us? I would ask you if you enjoyed the book of Judges. It's, I'm not sure it's something you enjoy, but it's something we need to hear, though, isn't it? Well, what's the church doing about the situations that we've got going on today? Sure. We're setting back in a little heavy world. Yeah. As that slide downward mm -hmm. continues and grows. Mm -hmm. Well, before Cordell prays, what are we going to start next? What are we going to do next? I'm not sure. <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm, I'm leaning towards the book of Jonah to, to look at a prophet. A, a prophet who grieved because he was successful. <laughs> now that's a strange twist, isn't it? Anyway. Cordell. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight. We thank you for the 
lesson the pastor has given us tonight. We read, we read uh, scripture, and it's so easy to gloss over and not think and apply it to ourselves. We thank you for this lesson, this study in Judges, where we see that the people constantly wavered between following you and following their own desires. May we never do anything like that. May we always follow you. Keeping your precepts, keeping your word in our hearts that we might <coughs> sin against you. We lift up, Father, all of the requests on the board. People having surgeries, hospital issues, physical issues, many other things, Father. You know the end from the beginning. You know each and every situation. But you tell us to lift our requests and petitions and prayers to you. And that's what we're doing in accordance with your word. So we thank you that we can lay them before you on the altar, knowing that you can work in each and every situation abundantly above and beyond what we can ask for. So we just thank you for that. Thank you that we can gather, we can have the freedom together to fellowship, but mostly to always worship you, to study your word, to take it into our hearts and apply it. We praise you and we thank you for this, for this opportunity in the name of Jesus. Any others? <clears throat> Father, at this particular time in our history and in our country, Lord, I want to just lift up the church as a whole. Father, um, we appear that we're getting to enter into some significant trials within our nation. And since your word does promise that judgment first begins with the household of faith, God, we, as a body of believers, need to be prepared for that. And, um, Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would respond appropriately, Lord, uh, because I hate to say it, Father, but in many ways, uh, the church of today isn't as well-equipped as it has been in years past to even be able to recognize what's happening and why. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, what I consider to be these last days, Lord, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord pray for revival and spiritual awakening within this body of believers here, within this group of people individually here, and Father, within this particular time in our nation, God, uh, our, our believers, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ definitely need to be revived, but Father, our country definitely needs a spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, Father, I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't confine this just to the United States, but that it would be spread abroad, Lord. Mm -hmm. Father, um, uh, I just feel like we're just asking just one more blessing, Lord, one more shower of blessing. Father, I pray that you would rain your spirit upon us, Lord. Mm -hmm. Father, I pray that you would fill us to the point that he's overflowing out of our lives into the lives of other people. God, I pray, Lord, that um, you would uh, prompt each one of us, Lord, individually to look and see where you are at work. Because that's what Jesus did. He saw where you were at work, and he joined in that work, whatever it was. So, God, help us, Lord, to see where that is. Help us, Lord, to be willing to step out of our comfort zones, Lord. We've got this idea, Lord, that we're only supposed to do this or that or our spiritual gift isn't this, or our spiritual gift isn't that. Well, Father, our spiritual gift consists of one or more spiritual gifts, Lord. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, we wouldn't be restricted and confining ourselves to what we consider our strengths, Lord, but be willing to step out, Lord, and do perhaps the unpleasant, uh, the, the unvisible, um, the unappreciated tasks that... Uh, uh, need to be taken care of, Lord. God, we need to be humbled, Lord, as a body of believers. And God, I pray that uh, uh, you would uh, enable us to see beyond ourselves and uh, give us godly eyes, Lord, to be able to see this world and the people in it the way you do. And give us the courage. Give us the strength. Um, give us the desire, Lord. Fill us, Lord, with your desire. And Give us, Lord, your eyes, Lord, that we might see things as you do. Give us, Lord, the compassion that Christ had whenever he cried, at old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how many times would I have gathered you like a mother hen would gather a chick that you would not? Help us, Lord, to reach the point, Lord, where we're crying over our nation, where we're crying over our church and its ability to reach to this community around us, Lord. God, do what only you can do, Lord. All the great revivals have come at, uh, at your beckoning, Lord. Uh, you just chose to graciously uh, perform a work like that. God, I pray that you do that yet once more within America. And God, I'll thank you and I'll praise you for this in Jesus' name. Father, we've certainly seen in the book of Judges that sin is a reproach to any people. We've seen how it brings suffering and consequences. Lord, we thank you for the mercy and grace that we find in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that we would run to that mercy. Seek your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would hear the call to be a people of the book. That we wouldn't just say that we're people of the book. We wouldn't just claim it. But God, that we would be that we would know your word and live according to it because it's, it's the plumb line. It's our compass. It's our anchor. There's so many things we could use to, so many ways we can describe your word. Lord, may we cherish it, cling to it, and live it, and bear witness to others that we would be salt and light in our culture. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.